Hello. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> it is going pretty well. It is a nice crisp morning and I am loving the fall weather. So things are going pretty good. How are you doing? Man, oh man, I just got things. I got things on my mind. I got things on my heart. And all of it is wrapped up into today's conversation. I am approaching this conversation with the weight of all of these things just resting heavy on me. And I just, I, if you don't mind, I want to just dive in. I want to catch you up a little bit about what's weighing on me. I really kind of want to just wrestle through this chapter in light of all that. Is that okay? Mm, yeah. What's going on? I've got a family member who's going through a divorce. And that is just awful. Just divorce is messy. People get hurt. People are just in turmoil. Kids get caught in the middle. It is not fun. You know, we're doing what we can to support this family member and all of that. But that's just the immediacy piece. That's what's most relevant to my life. But it feels like this is one part of a whole series of things that are happening around me or in our world. Like, I know of a church that is in the midst of just brokenness and division over the culture wars, and it's getting to a point where there might be some sort of either referendum on the pastor or some significant exodus from the church all over how we interpret or how we relate to the culture. Then we've got a national government that is in all sorts of turmoil. We've got international conflicts, including the war between Israel and Hamas and the war between Russia and Ukraine. And it just feels like from my own personal sphere on out into these radiating circles of despair, there's just pain in the world. There is violence in the world. There is injustice in the world. And my heart is just crying out for all of these things to be remedied, that this is not okay. And I'm just, I'm heavy with all of it. And I just want to like, I'm looking at this chapter on justice and how do we fight for what is just when everybody has different definitions of what is just like, is it just the strongest wins? Do we just have to battle it out until all the enemies are dead and we get to have our version of justice? That's what it feels like. So that's how I'm doing. Yay. Happy Man. episode. <laughs> well, it's, it's timely, right? I mean, this particular chapter of Wolf's book, I think asks exactly the right questions for what you're talking about, because there's so much going on. Like you said, there's international and national stuff that just impacts all of us. You've got local stuff. Uh, you know, in my life, I'm watching uh, several churches that I'm friends with go through just incredibly chaotic circumstances. And I'm watching a number of different friends wrestle with things that they've never like had to deal with before. And, and in the middle of all of this, I, I was particularly looking at the Israel-Hamas issues, 
I was thinking back the other day about the fact that in the 80s, the Christian response was, see how this fits on my eschatological map? See, Jesus is in fact coming back. Mm, Right. Taking this sort of stance of being an observer rather than engaged. And I love the fact that Wolf's chapter here offers us a genuinely prophetic place to stand in the midst of any conflict, whether it is anything from personal to international. It offers a way of being that is consistent with the character of God that could literally transform the world. It is actually offering what I think of as good news to the world. Mm. And it all wraps up around this sort of, what I think of as the high watermark of the chapter, this incredible idea of double vision. Mm. You know, I loved this idea that we have to be willing to enter into a place where we are interested in seeing the other person or the other quote-unquote side from their perspective. How do they see themselves? And then secondarily, how do they see us? And do we have the courage and the humility and the willingness to do that? And I think the whole chapter really is a setup and an invitation to that kind of thinking. It is, and particularly when you know you, you reference this double vision, and the double vision itself assumes an us and a them. And the us and the them are really stand-ins for cultural difference, or difference in perspective, if you will. And I really... It's just dark, but he starts off the chapter with what he calls a syllogism of despair. And Mm -hmm. this was so powerful to me. He said, basically, there are three, you know, any syllogism has a couple of statements. And in light of those, then this. And he starts with saying, look, justice is a culturally bound idea. And he expounds on that later, and we can defend that in a moment. But just for a moment, uh, presume that he's right, that justice is a culturally bound concept. Everybody has their own definition of justice. But then peace, the second statement, peace depends on justice between cultures. And therefore, violence will never stop because we're all going to have our own definition of justice and we can't have peace until everybody agrees on that same definition. So we're always going to fight about it until the end of time. And that's where he starts. And I got to be honest, that's how I feel about our moment. No, that's exactly it, right? Like, I appreciated the fact that he put into sort of logic speak the exact way that you just described you feel about the present moment and how I think a lot of people on virtually every side of every issue, whether it is a local, state, federal, or national, international, whatever personal kind of issue, I think it comes down to, I have my side of things, they have their side of things, I am convinced I'm right, they are convinced they're right, so let's just fight it out. Yeah, yeah. 
And so he proposes three different possible ways out. And we see these taking place in various aspects of our culture. And so Mm -hmm. along with him, I'd like to explore, like, is this a way out or is this a way out? Or do we have to come back, as he argues, to his vision, his idea of double vision? So these three possible ways out I want to explore together. Universal. So this is the affirmation that like, we all agree on one definition of justice. So is that our way out? Or do we have to take the postmodern approach that justice bears many names and justice is, you know, whatever the weak, the oppressed, the individual decides justice is, is just fine. Or the communitarian, which I think is a little more hard to describe. So maybe we'll have to describe that when we get to it. But so I want to approach these three topics and starting with universal affirmation. What is your takeaway from his exploration of this possible way out of the constant fighting over what is justice? You know, coming as I do from the evangelical perspective, I was so appreciative of his evaluation of this. You know, his basic idea here is, does the belief that there is in fact one actual justice get us anywhere? And he he sort of jumps into this idea that I thought was really helpful that we as Christians believe that there is one God who is God over all things, and therefore we do affirm that there is only one justice. Something can, in fact, be evaluated to be actually just or actually not just in reality. However, and this is where I appreciate his dis- the distinction that he's going to make, he is very quick to say, while there is an absolute justice, we as limited people, even Christians who have the Bible and all of the resources we have, have to acknowledge that our understanding of that justice is impacted and filtered through a cultural lens. And so while there is an absolute justice, we better make sure we have a make a distinction between the absolute justice and my, I guess what I would call my cultural understanding of justice. Those have to be differentiated. And if we do that, then we come to a point where we realize I have an understanding of absolute justice, you have an understanding of absolute justice, and those don't actually help us get anywhere in a dialogue. Yeah, I love the way he puts it actually on uh, in my book, it's page 185. He says, God's perspective on justice cannot help because even when God speaks, we cannot avoid inserting a few lines of our own into the speech. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly it. We see through a glass dimly, right? Like we don't have a perfect mm-hmm. understanding of God's justice. We have a culturally bound, myopic view of what God's justice is. It is the grand vision. There's no question. But is my understanding of it the grand vision? Or does it exist independent of me, and I need to hold my own understanding of it with a bit of humility? Well, and he comes to this, he, he's really trying to come to this in a very pragmatic fashion, right? 
He's not trying to ask an objective sort of ethereal question. He's just trying to say, how can we actually deal with the fact that there are real disagreements about justice in the real world? And so he comes at this point of saying, okay, if if I believe there is an absolute justice and you believe there is an absolute justice and I think it is X and you think it is Y, then how do we have a conversation about that? And I love the fact that he basically narrows this down to two things, right? We can either reduce our conversation down to what we can work out through agreed upon reason. That is to say, we can build a conversation starting with pure reason, or we can build a conversation based on the reasonableness of the conversation partners Hmm. and therefore build some kind of consensus. And the reason argument, he sort of dismisses and says, well, that has generally fallen apart through a variety of postmodern arguments. So he kind of moves quickly through that one. And then I forget exactly how he says it, but he basically says, and the reasonableness thing? Yeah, that's not going to (laughs) work. Well, right. He says, because our definition of reasonable comes from the liberal arts a very Western conception of what is reasonable. And it doesn't include a global perspective of reasonable. And so at Mm -hmm. the end, if you really define what somebody means by reasonable, they really just mean a liberal perspective. And so at the end, I mean, reasonable and liberal are synonymous and that's it. So it falls apart because we have our own culturally bound understanding of what is reasonable. So reason itself or being reasonable cannot be the ultimate guide because it doesn't in the end get us away from our culturally bound moment. Exactly. They both reduce down to, in in very simple layman's terms, what makes sense to me. And therefore, what we're really trying to do is fix the moment based on what makes sense to me. But if I'm trying to come to consensus based on what makes sense to me, and you're trying to come to consensus based on what makes sense to you, because this is the thing I love that he says. He points out the fact that whatever's happening in my head as a person who believes that I am right, the person on the other side is feeling and thinking the exact same way. (laughs) Right, exactly. Just because it makes sense to me is not a helpful argument. And we can dress it up with all sorts of philosophical language. It still comes down to, does it make sense to me? Yeah. I love how he summarizes this. He just basically says, the skeptic would therefore approach this moment and say, look, all you have to do in order for oppression and injustice to reign is take a particular definition of justice, deny that it is particular, and then apply it to everybody liberally. That may have been one of the most damning statements he makes in the entire book, because I think every one of us is profoundly guilty of this, Mm -hmm. of trying to make something that is particular, not particular, of trying to pretend that we don't have a cultural lens when we really do. Yeah. Let me actually make this step, because that sounds like it's an active choice in any given moment. I think we are so blind to our cultural lenses that we simply don't, we don't realize they exist. And therefore, we pretend we're looking at the truth without realizing there's something in the middle. Mm -hmm. We pretend we're looking at justice without realizing there's something in the middle. And when we are confronted with the thing in the middle, 
our cultural particularity, we are deeply reactive. Yeah. And so then for a moment, he entertains the postmodern approach. It says, okay, well, then we have to take all of these universal definitions of justice and deconstruct them because they're all culturally bound. They're all a shabby attempt at being universal. And in the process, they oppress somebody. And if we're going to really stick up for the little guy and we're really going to name the oppression and the injustice, then what we have to do is make it so that everybody has an equal say on what is just. And he says, well, that sounds lovely, but at the end, it means I have to affirm everyone. I just have to, like, everyone's okay, even people who are oppressive. I just have to say, well, they're, they're, they're equally valid, just like everybody else is equally valid. And so in the end, oppression still reigns because we have no leg to stand on to say, no, that's not okay. We've just decentralized it to the point where everybody gets to make their own decision, including an oppressive one, and that we have to affirm that that's okay. We can't stand there. No, exactly. And he goes on to argue that not only does this not help a conversation about justice, but it ultimately rebuilds the universalistic affirmation of justice via a back door. I love his summary of this postmodern position that all should respect all, none should respect those who do not respect all. And he says, so basically you have created a liberal postmodern universalistic perspective that everybody else has to agree with in order to have a conversation. So you're doing the same thing as as the other guys are. Yeah. Which brings us to his third option. The first two I had heard of. The third one was new to me. And I'll be honest, this is the second time I've read this chapter. The first time I didn't get it. The second time I had to call you earlier in the week and say, okay, I think this is what he's saying here. I have since outlined this piece of the chapter, and I think I get it. But I want to ask you, how did you understand this communitarian approach to justice? Yeah, it's interesting because he finds that this actually holds part of the key to double vision, if you will. And Mm -hmm. so he actually builds his final argument on aspects of this communitarian position. But his main critique is that communitarian vision tries to do too much. And so my understanding of it is that he acknowledges straight out of the gate, everybody stands somewhere. You know, I have my own cultural place and time. I stand with certain lenses on certain ways of understanding the world. I am culturally bound, and that is okay. That is inescapable. But we do need to acknowledge it out of the gate and just say, yes, I am who I am with my own unique perspective. And my own unique perspective, my own tradition, or for us, Christianity. And not just Christianity, right? Like, Right. A Western American evangelical Christianity. Yes, which highlights the fact that what he also says, like, we don't just stand in one place. We usually stand in multiple places. I stand in the Christian tradition, but as a 21st century 
American who lives in Oregon and goes to a non-denominational church. And, you know, you could go on and on and on down the line to show the different ways that I stand and how I am culturally bound. But he says every single one of us can draw on aspects of our tradition, and we have resources within those traditions that enable us to pursue justice. And if we all sat down in active dialogue with the resources that we had at hand for pursuing justice, this is the communitarian vision. But where Wolf says this breaks down is the vision expands to the point where we just keep having these discussions and we keep drawing on these resources really until some sort of consensus emerges. And Wolf says, yeah, that's pie in the sky thinking. We're not going to get that consensus, not this side of heaven. It's not going to happen. And to think that it is, is just magical thinking. And so instead, we have to set aside this idea of a, quote, coherent tradition or a grand vision or universal application that we're all going to agree on. Again, that was solution number one. It's not going to happen. So while we disagree, what's our approach going to be? We have to take aspects of our Christian tradition. We have to live into them, but not believe that we, with our limited understanding of it, can impose a coherent tradition around which everybody is going to adhere. Exactly. Well, and, and it's at this point, as he's working through his sort of modified communitarian model here, he makes several really interesting and I think controversial statements about the faith that we hold to as it is delivered to us through the scriptures. In order to make this point the way I understand it, let me try to define this idea of culture and tradition the way that he seems to be. A culture or a tradition is a unified, coherent system of thought and belief that leads to a specific way of life that is practiced by a specific group of people. Yeah, I'll take that. That seems to be his okay. definition. Okay. Because then what he says, he asks the question, does the Bible hand down a specific tradition? That is to say, a unified way of thinking and living and practice and habits and all of that, that a group of people can practice together. And his argument is, no, it doesn't. First of all, the Bible itself is not a coherent tradition. And this is where I think it would be really easy to misunderstand him. Yeah, for sure. He doesn't, right? Like, because he does not mean the theological vision of the Bible is incoherent. Correct. That is to say, the various truths that the Bible claims are in contradiction to one another. That is not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the truths that the Bible claims and our belief about them, or its invitation to us to believe those truths, can become or be integrated into a host of different traditions and cultures. So belief is only one aspect 
of what makes up a cultural or tradition landscape. And the Bible comes to us as a series of beliefs that we can then integrate into our culture or into our traditions. Yes. It is not itself a tradition. Absolutely. This is why the Bible can be translated into a bunch of different languages. It's why this is the God of all nations. This is the universality of the gospel. This isn't an imposition of a culture upon a people. These are the principles, the way of life, the way of Jesus, the way of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we can take into our cultural spaces and live out. And so you have the ancient Israelite model, but then you also have the Israelites in exile, and you have the Israelites post-exile. You have the Israelites under Roman occupation. You have the Jesus movement that starts in the Gospels and spreads through all these different cultures in the book of Acts. You have all of these different eclectic churches to whom Paul writes his letters. You have multiple churches that John writes to in the book of Revelation. You have a variety of cultural spaces, cultural moments, cultural understandings. But what is consistent in all of those spaces and times is the reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how we live in light of that. Another thing he, I think he's suggesting that needs to be universal is our recognition that we, therefore, are particular, that is, specific expressions of Christian belief in a specific cultural context. And we are not capable, nor should we be capable, of extracting the Christian beliefs from the cultural context and existing without culture in some sort of pie-in-the-sky, purified Christianity that is absolute and perfect. <laughs> right, right. And to think right? we can is foolish. And it, it goes back to, again, you're talking about these blinders that we have on that ultimately lead us to deny the fact that we have a culturally bound understanding of God's revelation. Yeah, exactly. Which, if we buy into all of this, leads us, and I, I stop me if I'm skipping anything that you want to hit, but this is the moment where suddenly his invitation to what he calls enlarged thinking, which is really this acknowledgement. I can't allow my own thinking to be enlarged until I acknowledge first that it's limited. Right. right? Yeah. And so if, if I'm allowing my thinking to be enlarged, the way it can be enlarged is this idea that we can now finally come back to of double vision. And I love this quote. We enlarge our thinking by letting the voices and perspectives of others, especially those with whom we may be in conflict, resonate within ourselves by allowing them to help us see them as well as ourselves from their perspective. And if needed, readjusting our perspectives as we take into account their perspectives. My favorite thing about that quote is that he invites us to let their perspective resonate within us, but then he tells us how, right? Like if we're fighting about an issue, how do I let their understanding of the issue resonate within me? And he says, here's how, by letting yourself see yourself 
and see them the way they see themselves and the way they see you. If you can see the characters in the drama, them and us, from their point of view, then their stance will suddenly make a whole lot more sense. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I really love the way he says this. He basically, in my my words, he, he says, even if there's a 1% chance that they are 1% right, we have to be willing to entertain that. They might be dead wrong. You might evaluate it. You might open yourself up and find that there's nothing redeeming in their perspective. Or you might find that there is a nugget of redemption in their perspective. Or you might find that there's a lot more than that. But we'll never know if we are closed to the idea of embrace, if we're closed to the idea of making room for the other. And I really love this quote. He says, to agree on justice in conflict situations, you must want more than justice. You must want embrace. Yes. And if I can, that brings me kind of back to this Israel-Palestine thing. Whether you mm-hmm. take the Israel perspective and say this is the, the divine holy land, this is what God gave them as an inheritance, they belong there or whatever, or whether you take the Palestinian perspective and say these people are invading the land that we've had for generations and they are usurpers and they need to leave, right? It doesn't really matter which of those sides you hold. I think we can acknowledge that each side has fought for their own version of justice and in the process has committed injustices in the name of justice. And now the other side wants to get justice for the previous injustice. And then the other side wants to get justice for that injustice. And at the end of the day, Wolf says, you have to break the cycle. If you really want justice, you have to want more than just justice. You have to actually want embrace. Well, and this is so hard. He is not inviting us to something that's easy or academic. No, right? No, I mean, by no means. He is inviting us to be angry and hurt, and in the midst of our anger and hurt, to ask how the perpetrator sees themselves and how the perpetrator sees us. Yeah, it reminds me. I mean, he even saw, he even references at this point too, going back to what we talked about last week with the prodigal son. The father mm-hmm. was so hurt. There's nothing that the son could have done to disrespect him more and to dishonor him more. And yet, relationship was prime. He maintained the will to embrace. And when his son returned, he threw his arms open and embraced him. That's his guiding metaphor in this book. And it's so poignant in this moment. You have to want embrace. If you don't, then you're just going to keep fighting for your version of justice and it never ends. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then the other thing he mentioned previously in the book that really resonated with me as he was describing this particular part of justice is the idea that there is the perpetrator and the victim and the objective observer, right? Like those are the three categories we actually break things down into. Mm -hmm. We don't break the world down into just perpetrator and victim. We break it down into perpetrator and victim and objective observer. 
And many of us in many situations, like I would be in the moment with the conflict between Israel and Hamas, I would very quickly put myself in the objective observer space and think, okay, they need to do this. (laughs) Right? Right. Yes. Yes. And then I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, that's why he said that way back there. Because his whole point is, no, nobody ever gets to read this and say they need to do this. I, as the imagined objective observer, need to set aside my pretend objectivity. And I need to say, okay, what does it mean for me to put myself in the variety of perspectives in this conversation? What do I need to see from Hamas's perspective? And not about Israel, about me. What is Hamas seeing about me as an American? What is Israel seeing about me as an American? And I'm sure there's a diversity of perspectives in both of those groups about the various types of people who are in America. I don't want to oversimplify it. I just found an interesting invitation to not be an objective observer in any conflict in his way of thinking here. I loved that, but he also balances that against this question, well, well, then can we stand anywhere? I mean, if we're all culturally bound, can we even fight for justice? And he makes the argument that, yes, we absolutely have to. Otherwise, injustice reigns. And even if we have a culturally bound understanding of it, and we have to hold our own assumptions loosely, we must fight for God's justice. We believe that God does have this universal, applicable for everybody understanding of what is justice. And even if we understand it imperfectly, we must fight for God's justice, not my definition of it, what is ultimately God's justice. And even if it's imperfect, for the sake of the oppressed, if nothing else, we must fight for God's vision of justice as best that we understand it while holding our own perspective with humility. Yeah, I found this to be very challenging as well. And I I might say it a little differently, but I, I think I'm saying the same thing here. I am taking a stand for my imperfect understanding of justice while acknowledging that I understand it to be an imperfect version of justice and being open to it being corrected all at the same time. Yeah. Right? I don't get to, I, I, he said this, and I don't have the quote, but he said, we don't get to split this into two steps. Step one, I identify the just thing to do, and step two, I do it. The real world doesn't work that way. Sometimes you have to act, and your action is imperfect, and you have to course correct midway through, and then you have to act again, and then you're course correcting again, and it's just messy, and that's okay. That's not okay. He doesn't say it's okay. He says it is better than inaction. Yes. And ultimately, we look forward to that final reconciliation. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the vision that he promotes. And honestly, this was going to be my thought later, so I'm just going to like incorporate it here because it fits. Our church really loves the Bethel song, Homecoming. Have you sung this? I don't know if I have. How's it go? The Father is welcoming. This is our homecoming. Heaven. Oh, yep, 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 yep. Yep, okay. It is this beautiful picture of the final restoration of heaven. 
and all of God's people gathering around, and the children are playing and dancing and laughing, and the Father is welcoming because what was lost is finally found. It's this amazing picture of true peace and final hope that we all look forward to. And I love the fact that Wolf is living in this tension of this already and not yet. Already God has the final vision in mind. Already God is the universal ruler of all. But not yet have we all come to full redemption. Not yet have we realized God's vision for universal justice. And we look forward to that day, and only then will it finally be complete and full. That's good. Well, I love that. I also love, I think that there is something that is a powerful illustration of some of what we've been talking about, about a church in your tradition being willing to use a Bethel song Hmm. in worship. Yeah. I barely come from the tradition that like fully affirms Bethel in all of its Bethelness. Um, <laughs> yes. You come from what can comfortably be called the other side of the aisle. And I would imagine if we compile the list of the things that folks at Bethel clearly believe and asked the folks at your church, do you want a worship leader who believes these things? The response would be a resounding no. Mm. But that's okay. We're not looking for a universal coherence of you to believe what they believe. You have found a piecemeal convergence between your church and Bethel that allows you to connect with God on a deeper level. And It's wonderful to me, and I think it's a great example of this, when churches are willing to live out the kingdom in exactly this way. Does that make sense? Yeah, we found a piecemeal convergence. And I think sometimes in seminaries or churches or Christian culture in general, we spend a lot of time focusing on theology. What is our right way of thinking? What is correct? What is true? And making sure we don't create a theological error or a heresy. Mm-hmm. But what Wolf is pushing us to do is say, yeah, it's valuable to try to get our thinking right. But ultimately, as Christians, we follow a crucified Messiah. And even in the battle over what is good theology and what is right, we have to follow the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is self-sacrifice, self-giving in the face of somebody else being wrong. And if Bethel is wrong on some theological issues, or if I'm wrong on some theological issues, we can at least embrace one another over this common vision of what heaven is going to be like and what the final restoration might feel like. That is a point of convergence. And as the crucified Messiah would do, I think we need to come together at least over that. Well, and I think you used language that is very accurate for what we are often thinking we're doing. You know, you said this battle over theology. I was thinking of that in the context of your previous quotation from 1 Corinthians 13 that we see in a glass dimly. Is that 13? Am I remembering that right? Yes, I think so. Yeah. 
that's 13. All right. Can you imagine sending a bunch of people into battle who have bad vision? <laughs> I have a really good friend that I grew up with. Uh, we're, we're not in close contact anymore, but he was really a good friend when, I, when we were growing up. He had dreamed of being an, a fighter pilot his entire life. And he got disqualified because his sight was one point off what it needed to be. Game over. He cannot go into war for his country as a fighter pilot because he can't see clearly enough. Mm. And yet we pretend we can go into some sort of theological battle when we can barely see the truth and we're pretending we can see it accurately. That just seems wildly dangerous. Mm. Yeah. With that in mind, I want to turn to the audience and say, that's part of why we want to do this podcast. It's part of why we want to dive into Miroslav Wolf's thinking. We need conversation partners. We need one another to round out our poor vision. On our own, we don't see clearly. So I'm exactly. inviting all of us with poor vision to come together and help one another see more clearly. So thank you for joining in with this conversation, and we'd love for you to keep the conversation going. Whether that's joining us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, threads, whatever, and sharing your thoughts and perspectives, or whether you want to take this episode and share it with a friend and have a really productive conversation about how to pursue justice in a world of enmity and injustice. How do you do that while following the crucified Jesus? So please join the conversation. We absolutely need one another. Well, hey, you used your thought already. I did. It's gone. I have no other does, thoughts. Does that My brain is empty. Does that mean I can have two? Can I have two? Oh man. You're selfish. I don't think that's very just and I would like to fight you to the death over that. Okay. What weapon do you choose? I don't know. I'm going to it's going to have to be a long range weapon since I'm in Oregon and you're in Missouri. <laughs> All right. Well, pray about it. And in the meantime, I want to throw Two shortish thoughts by you, because I could not decide which one. I have wanted to share both of these with you all week. Oh, uh, cool. So I'm really excited about both of them. Uh, the first one is from a recent episode of Preston Sprinkle's Theology in the Raw. Oh, such a good and podcast. So good, right? But he said something. He was commenting on a sermon that somebody else preached, and he said, you know, I don't want to comment on something I haven't listened to and you haven't listened to, but I also don't want to encourage you to go listen to some random sermon. I want you to fully engage with the preaching at your own local church. Hmm. And I just loved that, especially in the context of what we were reading this week about the particularity of our own embodiment or, or enculturation of Christianity, his invitation and challenge, go fully engaged with the preaching at your own church, I thought was just profound. Yeah, so good. When do you hear that challenge on from somebody with a national platform? Uh, right? Yeah. That's a lot of humility there, and I love it. So that was thought number one. Thought number two, also from a podcast, uh, this is a Psalms thought. Ooh. So this is a throwback to our Summer in the Psalms series, which 
you know, as we've discussed, we'll probably do something like it every year because we just found it to be incredibly rich. But here is an interesting thought. This is from the Influence podcast where they interviewed Ian Valencourt, who is an assistant professor of Old Testament somewhere, and I don't remember where, but he has recently written a book on the Psalms, and and there were a couple of great things that he said, and I am going to get this a little bit wrong because I looked for it to find what he said in print, and the only way you can do that is to buy his book, and I have not bought his book yet. <laughs> but the concept of what he said I thought was very, very helpful. He suggested that not only are the individual Psalms inspired, the editorial team that put the Psalms in the order that they are currently in was as inspired. Mm. We often say this regarding Psalm 1 and 2, right? Psalm 1 and 2 are a great introduction to the Psalms. He goes further than that. He says, you know, you need to look at each of the five books of the book of Psalms as having some major themes within them that you can understand a particular psalm based on which book it's in, because it's intended to be understood in that context. But then uh, you can also understand it in the flow of the main ideas that the, the editor's editorial team is working with. And so you really see the psalm on three different levels. Similar to, uh, he said it's a lot like there was a major loss that uh, recording artists experienced when songs were no longer bought by the album, they were bought by the song. Ooh, what because a good analogy. Great, isn't that good? I have heard this a bunch of times by artists who say, no, 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 I was trying to communicate something not just with the individual song, but with the album as a whole. Now, that doesn't mean every song in the album is directly about that particular topic, but it does mean that there was an overall idea that was trying to be communicated. Mm. And he suggests that the basic ideas, and I'm going to get this a little bit wrong. This is where I'm, I'm not sure I got it right, but I just thought it was so good I, I wanted to share it even if I didn't get it quite right. He says... Books one and two are largely about David. The majority of David's psalms are in books one and two. He, he uses some phrase like it is David straining to be the king he's supposed to be. And then it goes into book three, in which David somehow takes a step, or, or the psalmists, including the ones that are by David, take a step beyond who David is, and they look through David's experience to someone greater who is coming, the Messiah. And then in book four, there are a bunch of Psalms that really wrestle with the exile experience. And then book five is this celebration of who God is as king. Mm, I love that. And I, I it makes me want to go back and read each book of the Psalms in that light and just kind of evaluate that because that's that's a cool organizing principle. It really is. And, and it's one of the things he really is arguing for in this podcast episode is to understand the Psalms as a whole. And so if you're interested in this, I would really encourage you to go listen to the Influence podcast episode first so that you can be looking for the correct organizing principle the way he actually means it. Because <laughs> yeah. he has a PhD in the Psalms and I don't. And I heard it once and was like, wow, that's amazing. 
and I want to make sure his ideas get properly stated. Sure, sure, um, sure. Rather than half-heartedly stated. But isn't that amazing? That's so good. It makes me excited to do another Summer, summer in the Psalms series because there's so much about the Psalms that we've yet to uncover. And it's why people spend their entire mm-hmm. lives devoted to the Psalms because they're so rich. There's You could never uncover it all. Exactly. Exactly. It's so good. Well, with that deep and profound insight, we are now uh, ready to move on to our final deep and profound insight of the conversation. Are you ready for the witch Josh question? Oh, boy. Okay. You know, we have to do it at some point. So go ahead. All right. Here it is. Which Josh associates cream soda with having a black eye? <laughs> I love that this came up. So for our listeners, this is another baseball story in disguise. Um, it's always a baseball story, it, which means it's not me and you haven't said that yet. Oh, yeah. That's it's right. you. It's me. Yes. Josh from Oregon. Uh, yeah. So I was playing first base as a little leaguer and... I think it was even like between innings when you do like the little practice, like your your pitcher's warming up and the first baseman is like rolling grounders to the rest of the infield and they're throwing it back. And it was either third base or shortstop like whizzed it over to me and it bounced off of the tip of my glove and smacked me in the eye. And Ooh. yeah, it was very, very painful. And so I was sitting in the bleachers and one of the dads brought me over an unopened, ice-cold A&W cream soda. He's like, here, put this on your eye. And so that was my ice pack. And once I was done with it, I was like, well, now I've got a free cream soda. And so I actually drank drank the cream soda afterward. And that was the very first time I'd never even heard of cream soda. That was the very first time I'd ever had it. Tasted great. But every time I've had cream soda ever since, I picture like having a black eye and holding this can up to my eye. Oh man, that's funny, painful. I don't know how to respond to that story. Yeah. You're probably just wrong no matter how you do. Yep. Yep. So how about I just say, are we doing this again next week? Okay. Sounds good. All right. I'll talk to you then. Okay. Bye. Bye.